We're looking at the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And the inscription is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mar among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if there is one book in the Old Testament that we don't know what to do with, oftentimes in the, the past hundred years in the history of the Christian church, it is the Song of Solomon. You could, you could get any number of commentaries on the Song of Solomon written by Reformed and Protestant theologians, and none of them will agree. I have read many of them. Um, some will say that these are nine nuptial songs drawn out of the ancient Near East, and as such, they are teaching what, uh, what marriage in the context of the covenant people should look like, and that is all that they're teaching. Uh, many will say that the song is reflecting back on what marriage should have been in the garden. I certainly think there are those things to this. But if that's all that they are teaching us, if, if all that this song is teaching us is about what Christian marriage should look like and how, how that should work, then we have a lot of questions we can't answer. Who are these other characters? Why, why, is, why is the Shulamite, the, the one who is the receiver of peace, that's what her name means, why is she trying to stir up other people to go after the beloved? That doesn't make sense. Um, I am a sucker for a good love song. And uh, when I was in high school, I got a 1.8 GPA because I played guitar and learned love songs so I could get dates. And that was so much of my problem growing up. But, but I learned at a very young age, people love love songs. There is something about a beautiful love song that grips our hearts and that does something to us internally. Um, they almost work on us in an unobjective way, they work on us in a way in which we feel the meaning of what's being said, even more than understanding what is being said or why we appreciate what's being said. And I think it would help us as Westerners who are so geared to have propositional minds and to want the Apostle Paul over everything else and not understanding poetry from the ancient Near East to understand that so much of the language of the Song of Solomon is language that is meant to be felt, if I can say that carefully, felt in a spiritual sense in the soul of a believer. 
There are symbols. There are metaphors. Many of them are drawn out of the context of redemptive history itself. You can't even understand this book unless you understand the earlier parts of the Bible. So for instance, at one point, the Shulamite says to her beloved, hide me in the cleft of the rocks. Where, where did we get that language? Well, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock when God passed by and declared his name and his attributes. There are all these allusions drawn out of previous forms of revelation in this book that, that are woven into the tapestry of it. And then prominent in this book, and you may miss this, and it's very important, prominent in this book is the language of the tabernacle, the temple, and the king's house. Um, the, the beloved tells the Shulamite that she's like a wall of cedar. That's not love language between human beings. Cedar and lilies and pomegranates around the temple. There were botanical imagery carved into the temple, the dwelling place of God, pointing back to the Garden of Eden. And all through this song, there is language, temple language. There is language intimating that this is a book of rich, spiritual, and mystical, if I can say that, significance for the souls of believers. Now, before we look at this, in church history, the overwhelming, the overwhelming interpretation, especially among Christian theologians, has been that this book is ultimately about the Lord Jesus and his church. Um, that is the overwhelming testimony of the Reformed tradition until about 150 years ago. Um, it is not allegorizing. We, we sort of have an allergy to the word allegorizing. We don't even understand why we don't like it. We've just been told not to do it. Um, we, we are sometimes mistakenly told that, well, you're just making it say whatever you want it to say. No, again, we want it to say what it's actually saying. And we're not gonna get there by just analyzing the words and the etymology of the words, and, and we're not gonna get there by merely uh, trying to unpack the 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 um, the sensual language and the intimacy that is so clearly set out from marriage in inspired revelation. Now, we will get there, I think, if we look at this book in context. And in order to do that, we have to understand again that this is wisdom literature. This was written under the period of the Davidic covenant. And so if you want to understand what this book means, you have to understand that this is the song of David's son. This is the song of the covenant son of David, who is himself a type of Christ. This was almost certainly written by Solomon. Notice the inscription, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, Solomon, you may not know this, 1 Kings tells us that he wrote 1,004 songs. And this is the song of his songs. This is the superlative song. This is the most excellent song of Solomon. This song uh, super abounds every other composition that he ever wrote in all of his wisdom, and he is writing it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know who all the characters are. There are many characters in this song. Um, Solomon is woven throughout, but some commentators think that he is just a spectator. Uh, actually, I think the best way to understand what's happening here is that Solomon is reflecting on David, his father, because David in Hebrew is beloved, means beloved, and this is the beloved. 
And David's relationship with Israel was such that it said that the hearts of the people were wed to the king. And I think Solomon is most likely looking back on the relationship between David and Israel as a type of Christ in the church, and he is reflecting on the lessons that we learn from that to stir up our own souls for communion with God. And that's the point of this. The point of this book is that we would grow in communion with God. Uh, John Owen, his excellent little volume on communion with God is basically an exposition of the Song of Solomon. Uh, the, the Puritans and the Reformers and many of the British Calvinistic evangelicals came to the Song of Songs whenever they had communion seasons, whenever they were coming to the table. They were doing expositions of the song because they understood that there's something in this that is meant to stir up your heart to desire Christ and to commune with him. Now, what I want to do after that long introduction tonight is just look at four things briefly as we look at these first 10 verses. And these four things can be applied throughout the rest of this exposition. If you wanted to go through the book and meditatively do this, you could apply these categories to it. Um, first, we'll see the excellencies of the bridegroom. Second, we will see the unworthiness of the bride. Third, we will see the bride seeking the bridegroom. And fourth, we will see the bridegroom declaring his love for the bride. The excellencies of the bridegroom, the unworthiness of the bride, the bride seeking the bridegroom, and the bridegroom declaring his love for his bride. Well, notice there's no introduction. He jumps in. It's very similar to Psalm 45, isn't it? My heart is overflowing with a, a good theme. I recite my composition about the king, and, and these are parallels. Psalm 45 and the Song of Solomon parallel each other. The symbols, the language, the, the, the focus, there's a king. And, and he is coming to marry his bride who is the daughter of a prince. And it's the same language throughout. It's the same symbolism. Hebrews 1 tells us very clearly Psalm 45 is about Christ. And the same language is used in every way in a greater measure here. And the first thing we want to see in this is that we are to understand as we listen to this love song that there is an excellency to the Lord Jesus that should draw us to him. That if you are ever going to be drawn to him, if you are ever going to come to him, and that is, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, something that needs to happen a thousand times over in the life of a believer. It's not a one-time drawing, but that we would see his excellence. Listen to this. He says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I, there was a famous Reformed theologian I respected a lot for his work in redemptive history, and I went up to him once and I said, Dr. So-and-so, I've been working on the Song of Solomon, and I really think it's about Christ in the church. The temple imagery helps us understand that. What do you think? And he said, I think it's perverse to think of Jesus kissing me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, when you understand this spiritually, there is nothing perverse to, to thinking of the, the language of intimacy and affection. I mean, Hosea does this. God's relationship with Israel is thrown under the rubric of sexual immorality and then fidelity. That's what's happening here. Worship and intimacy are being harmonized. And at the outset, what is going to draw us to this beloved? What is gonna, what's going to make us go to him? Let him, the longing for him, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better 
than wine. The bride can't even describe the greatness of the bridegroom. Um, the best she can do is say, your love is, is more inflaming than wine. It, it causes more joy than wine. It, it does what wine pales in comparison to. Um, all throughout this song, she is groping for language that will help us understand the excellence till she comes to the point of saying, you are fairer than 10,000, chief among 10,000. That's not Solomon. He had 1,000 wives. That's not David. He took Bathsheba to be his wife. This is the Lord Jesus. He's fairer than 10,000. He's altogether lovely, he'll say. Altogether, she'll say. Um, Notice this, verse 3, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. There is an aroma to Christ. That's the way the Apostle Paul speaks about the aroma of Jesus, right? And remember when he's in that room with Mary and the alabaster flask of oil and she breaks it open and anoints him for burial. And John says, and it's a double entendre, he says the whole room was filled with the fragrance. The point is the fragrance of Christ exudes and it attracts and it draws and 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 Bible is everywhere giving us that so that you will you will you will come to him, that the Christianity is not just for you a set of propositions, that it's not just, well, this is right, that's wrong, we're not like them, we're different than them, they should change. That's not Christianity. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the oils that are poured out. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Now, there are different groups in this psalm, I've already said that, one of those groups are the virgins. Now, in the Bible, you have to understand when they speak of virgins, they, they are speaking symbolically and spiritually about those who are faithful in their worship of the true and living God. They're not talking about those who are physical virgins. They're not talking about people that are doing good enough. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says that the virgins follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, who needs a lamb? Sinners. <laughs> who follows a lamb that's slain? Sinners do. They're virgins because they are committed to him. They are entrusted to him. They are, they are not worshiping other gods. They are going to him. They are seeing the excellency. Notice that, therefore, the virgins love you. There's another group in this, uh, in this song called the Daughters of Jerusalem. That's a title used in the prophets about Israel. And, and Jesus, remember going to the cross, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Presumably, maybe unbelieving members of the covenant community. And, and, and what they need more than anything is to have the beauty and excellency of Christ stirred up in their soul so that they will follow after. And, and the Shulamite, the one who is longing for her beloved, she is a picture of the believer who says, I will show you the way. I will speak of the excellencies of Christ. I will declare them to others. That's why you have her declaring these excellencies about him so that others will go and follow him too. It's absolutely amazing. Your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Notice that she is acknowledging in verse 4 that she is dependent on him doing the work of bringing her to him. Draw me 
after you, we will run to you. Let us run. Draw me after you. I will go first. When I hear of Christ, I won't wait for others to go. I will go, and then others will follow. Isn't that awesome? Draw me after you. Other, we will run to you. And then notice, the king has brought me into his chambers. That once we are drawn by the grace of God to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus says, all that the Father draws will come to me. And once he sovereignly draws us to Christ, and again, that that needs to happen in our life a thousand times over. But when he sovereignly draws us back, he brings us into sweet places of fellowship and intimacy. He brings us into the inner chambers, as it were, of his own house. You know, Charles Spurgeon has a volume, I would encourage you to get it, on his expositions on the Song of Solomon. They're excellent, some of the best. Um, And it's called The Holy of Holies. He's bringing us, as it were, into the, the inner chamber. Isn't that awesome? Um, this is the first of many descriptions of the beloved. Um, they will be strewn throughout these chapters, and there is that one place where he is set out in symbolism, his legs are like pillars and and his hair is black and and all of these symbols of what he looks like and it's 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 rivaled only by the description of Christ in Revelation, where it says his eyes are like a flame of fire, yet his hair was white like wool. He had a long robe on he's the high priest, a golden sash and and a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It's speaking about the excellencies of Christ. It's speaking about his perfections that his word judges and saves, that his eyes refine, that he sees and knows all things, that he is the ancient of days, that he is the high priest in the midst of his church. And the symbolism throughout this is meant to stir up in us an understanding about the Lord Jesus, more about who he is, so that we would understand more of his love. And and let me just note that as we move on to the second point here, that the most important thing we can hear at the outset is that his love is better than wine. The greatest excellence of Jesus Christ is that he loves us, who are in and of ourselves so unlovely. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I felt this when I read this. He said, I'm not so concerned about how he can love you. I don't understand how he can love me. That's, I feel that. I feel that. I can feel that from my own wife, certainly from the infinite, eternal Son of God. I can feel, how can, how can he love me? Um, the bride is setting out her unloveliness. Notice verse 5, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Now, again, She is using language of the ancient Near East, language they would have understood, but she is saying something about herself. She's saying, by way of comparison, I am not lovely. There is nothing in me that is is worthy of the love of this beloved bridegroom. There's nothing in me worthy of being the object of his love. By the way, at, at the heart of true Christianity is acknowledging that recurrently. That when the world tells you you're worth it, 
No, you're not. I'm not. You're not good enough in yourself for him to love you. There's nothing about us that should make us an object of the love of Christ. Not your gifts, not your intellect, not your looks, not your kindness, not your eagerness to serve. Nothing about us makes us lovely to him except that he has chosen to put his love on unworthy people like this, like us. Um, listen to what Spurgeon says here. He says, what a wonderful thing it is that the Son of God should love us. I do not wonder so much how he should have any love for you, but I'm lost in wonder at the fact that he has any love for me, even me. Does not each believer feel that the wonder of wonders must ever be that the Lord Jesus Christ loves him? He was in glory, wanting nothing. He was in his Father's bosom, enjoying ineffable delight. If he wanted to cast his eyes of love on any of his creatures, there were myriads of bright spirits before his throne. But no, he must look down, down, down to earth's dunghill. Don't let that language be lost on you. And find us who were utterly unworthy of his regard, then he might have pitied us and left us in our lost estate, but it could not be so with the one who has such a heart as our dear Savior has. He must need love us because he has chosen to do so. You know, I've said this, I preached on Psalm 45 seven months ago. I'm sorry, back in July. And, um, and I said then, and I feel this, very much in my own soul now, we do not meditate enough on the love of Christ. When the Apostle Paul is trying to explain the greatness of the love of Christ, he, he says the length and the breadth and the width and the height, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That's what I meant when I said this is meant to be felt more than understood just rationally. We are meant to feel the Son of God loves me. I can go to him because he has laid down his life for me. Um, love put him on the cross. Love led him to put himself on the cross. Um, John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that one of the greatest battles that you and I will have in life, and and I, I have it, is whenever I sin, feeling like somehow he doesn't love me anymore instead of that love drawing us back to him in repentance and confession and a desire to forsake sin because he has loved us, because he does love us. John could say, the Son of God loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Paul, when he thinks about his relationship with Christ, he doesn't just speak of union with Christ as some kind of theological category that we can bandy about because we're more right than other people. He says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's how Paul thought about what happened to him on the Damascus Road. What happened to him was Christ showed the love that put him on the cross and then drew him to himself for Saul of Tarsus's uh, murderous soul and Christ-hating soul. Saul hated Christ. Christ loved him, and he gave himself for him. And that's how Paul thought about himself as one redeemed by the Lord Jesus. Listen to Spurgeon again. Spurgeon again, oh, the love of Christ. 
It must ever be the wonder of wonders that Jesus Christ, the darling of heaven, should have set the eyes of his affection upon men of mortal mold, on sinful men, on me. That, to me, is the climax. That's powerful. That, to me, is the climax. Um, We're unworthy. And yet, notice that the Shulamite, the one who receives peace, as it were, as her name indicates, she is the one who is seeking for him. Notice, she, she says in verse 7, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? There is an active seeking to find him. Now, this is a king and this is a shepherd, as was David, as is Jesus. He, he is now being spoken of as a shepherd. Where, where do you shepherd your flock? I want to find you. I want to be with you. I want to be where your people are. She's essentially saying, where is it that you care for, um, for your fold? Right? Jesus says explicitly, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Other sheep I have that I must bring. There will be one flock and one fold. And, and she is seeking him. And throughout this book, it's interesting, she will seek him and you will have, uh, Pastor Baird and I joke about the word experiential because um, it, it's hard to explain, but <laughs> there will be an experiential Christianity at work here. Uh, there will be times where she is with her beloved and there are times when he is not there. There, there are those scenes in here in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. She goes around the city, and she asks the watchman, where is he? And, and she can't stop until she finds him. By the way, perfect parallel with Mary Magdalene outside of the garden tomb. She goes by the, she says, where have you laid him? I'll, I'll take him. I mean, perfect parallels. Um, and then the beloved in chapter 5 is said to come to the door and knock. And she delays. She doesn't go immediately at his prompting. She's, she's being summoned to him, and she, for whatever reason, doesn't go to him. And then when she decides, I will go to him, she opens the door, and he's gone. But there's fragrance on the door. And, and, and there are theologians that think John is alluding to this in Revelation, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's saying that to the church. He's calling professing believers to come and commune with him and find him. And, and here, uh, she is wanting to know where does she have to go. I don't want to go to the wrong place. I don't want to go to the folds of your companions. I don't want to go even to where your friends are, but you're not there. I must find the beloved is the cry of the heart of a believer. And then notice, I love his response and dialogue. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock. And let me say this. This is not allegorizing. This is why it's so important for us to be in weekly worship. The flock is the congregation where the Lord Jesus ministers his own word about his own person, about his saving work for the souls of his people. He says, if you do not know, follow in the tracks of the flock. Essentially, look what other believers are doing. See where they go to find me. And follow in the fold. Follow in the fold that's gone before us throughout church history, the many faithful who, who went and found him and communed with him and knew the love of Christ in their souls. Pasture your young goats besides 
the shepherd's tents. I want to say this tonight briefly. Um, We can never seek the Lord Jesus enough. And we seek him in his word. We need to be seeking him in his word in our homes. We need to be seeking him under the preaching of the word. I know you do that. Encourage you to continue doing that. Um, We need to be seeking him with other believers. Um, and, And when... There are times that we feel like we're not finding him. We keep seeking until we do. There are times, there are dark nights of the soul. I've known them where you want to be close to Jesus. And for whatever reason, maybe it's sin or maybe it's spiritual carelessness or any number of things, you're not seemingly finding close, intimate fellowship with the Savior. But he's promised. He's promised that if you seek him, you will find him. Um, He's promised. All that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. He's promised to restore us a thousand times over. Listen, this is beautiful. Spurgeon said this. I I thought about just preaching a Spurgeon sermon, but here we go. I'll just incorporate a bunch of quotes for you. Are you weary, brother, and sick of life? I am. Are you weary and sick of life? You only need more of Christ's love shed abroad in your heart. Are you ready to faint through unbelief? There are times we we do. Spurgeon said, you only need more of Christ's love and all will be well with you. Isn't that awesome? Um, You know, he restores us when we backslide. We don't want to backslide, but there are times we do. And when we go back to him, we we say, Lord Jesus, I'm I'm a bruised reed. I'm I'm a smoldering wick. Don't, You've promised not to, to break a bruised reed. You've promised not to quench the faintest spark on the candle. Um, I've told you I love that scene in Pilgrim's Progress where uh, Satan in the interpreter's house is dumping water on the fire. I think it's supposed to be representative of the evil one to put the fire out, but the fire keeps getting bigger because on the backside, I guess the Holy Spirit's pouring more into it to flame it up. And, and that's what the Lord does to us when we fall. I just read in the Proverbs today, the righteous may fall seven times, but the Lord restores them. Seven's the number of perfection. You may, you may fall. You may, you may have been spiritually sluggish for a long period of time. I, I have known those seasons. Um, go back to him. Seek him. Go where his flock is. Seek more of his love. Cry out to God to shed that love abroad in your heart. I was thinking of the hymn, Bernard of Clairvaux, who, by the way, also wrote an entire commentary on the Song of Solomon, uh, the medieval monastic theologian, wrote two hymns that are in our Trinity hymnal, and one of both are beautiful. Jesus, the very thought of thee, there are those great words, um, The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. So that if you have ever known yourself to be the object of his love, and then there are times that you feel as though you're you're not, this is meant to stir us up to have confidence that he has loved us and he has given himself for us. Well, notice, lastly and very briefly, Now the bridegroom 
declares his love for the bride. And this is beautiful because all throughout here, she has been explaining the greatness of his love. She's explained how she's not worthy. She's dark, but lovely. She understands that she's a sinner and yet redeemed by him. And and now here he is declaring that love for his people. Notice this. Notice he says, I compare you, my love, to a, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Now, this is the first of many descriptions where he will speak in symbolic language of the greatness of his love for his people. And I think we sometimes forget that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is a, is a love letter from the bridegroom of heaven to his people. And that when we come to the Bible, we ought to be coming and listening to hear him declare his love for his people. Um, Because if I don't, then all I'll hear is the warnings, which are necessary, the threatenings, which are necessary, the judgments, which are necessary, but I will not realize that the purpose is to understand that despite what we deserve and despite what we are, he looks on us with incredible love, love that you can't even describe. That, how, do you, how do you explain infinite love? We can't even explain the love that we have for our children. We can't even put into words the love that we have for our spouse or for our parents or for some dear friend. Imagine, this is the heart of the infinite God. I used to not be able to sing through, and I wish the Lord would soften my heart like he did in those early years after I was newly converted, but um, several hymns that uh, just made me weep. Uh, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Um, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And, and just being overwhelmed, thinking, how could he love us? And yet, he does. And for all eternity, he's going to rejoice over his people with singing. That love is going is to abound in his joy over his people, his delight in his people. And one day, because of what he did on the cross, all of those dark imperfections in our lives will be washed away entirely for all of eternity, and we will really and truly be lovely because of his love for us and because of his saving work for us. Jonathan Edwards has a a chapter in Charity and Its Fruits called um, Heaven, a World of Love. And he says, in heaven, you will love everyone else perfectly. Oh, for that day. We will love everyone else perfectly because the love of God will be flowing through us. That's a cool thought. (laughs) Because we'll be engulfed in the Holy Spirit for all of eternity and his love will work through us and out perfectly. That's awesome. Um, And all of that is because of the love of Christ. Now, if you choose to reject everything I've said tonight about the Song of Solomon, that's on you. 
and you will be missing out, tragically. I, I, my desire would be that we would, we would make use of this book, that we would spend time in it, even if it's difficult, even if you don't understand all the nuances to it. Um, again, Spurgeon's sermons are exceedingly helpful. Um, and, and I would encourage you to get those and read them and meditate often and, and make this part of your diet because at the end of the day, I need this every day. Um, and I imagine you do too. I want to give you just a couple brief applications. One, I want to encourage all of us to be meditating on the excellencies of Jesus Christ, to be thinking about his power, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, his mercy, his tenderness, his kindness, his justice, all those excellencies. Um, Think about how he stopped the wind and the waves with a word. And that's the lover of your soul. Think about the cross the most. Um, Think about the way the Apostle John saw something in Jesus that would make him want to recline and lean back on him in affectionate love to his Savior. Think of what, what is in him that would have made Mary Magdalene avoid angels at the tomb and say, I have to find him. Where is he? Just give me his body. I will take his lifeless body because of his excellence as my Savior. Um, Meditate often on the excellencies of the bridegroom. Meditate often on your own unworthiness, not in a a sort of a, a monastic sense in which you're scourging yourself and beating yourself up, but in a real honest sense that we are deeply, deeply sinful so that we would want to run to him and know more of his love for us and be transformed by him and by what he's done on the cross and through his resurrection and in his intercession for us now and that we would go, we would go to him though we're ashamed, even though we would afflict our souls and we would go in brokenness and in contrition, but knowing, he, he says, to come boldly because he's our great high priest and he's done everything for us. And so let, let those thoughts of your unworthiness motivate you to see more of his excellency in welcoming sinners like us. And then third, I would encourage all of us to be seeking him, seeking communion with him, crying out for his nearness, meditating on his word, praying to know more of him, And then finally, meditating often on his love for you. Let me read you this last quote, and I'm breaking the cardinal rule of preaching, never to introduce something new at the end, but here we go. Here Spurgeon says, Since Jesus first came to you and saved you, many a time you have been in trouble, and he has comforted you. You have been in labor, and he has sustained you. You have been in disrepute, but he has honored you. Alas, you have proved yourself unworthy of his love, but he has forgiven your backslidings. You have wandered from him, but he has restored you. Remember his great love. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are so weak, and I am so weak in seeking to proclaim the truth of the love of Christ. And yet, Lord Jesus, we have known your love. 
And we have known what it is to be the objects of your love and to know that you have given yourself for us, unworthy as we are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have loved sinners like us. We pray that you would continue to make your love known to us, that you would bind us together among your flock, and that we would find you in places of worship under the ministry of the word and the scriptures. Oh God, we pray that you would give us a greater zeal to be seeking communion with you, each member of the Godhead, through the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would give us more of your spirit, that you would shed abroad in our hearts your love, and that we would be able to say with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me. We pray that you would do this and so much more, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.